Hello, dear friends, and welcome back to the Learning Future podcast with me, Luca Perry. I hope you're having a delightful day wherever you are in the world. And today, we continue our conversation about education transformed. Why does it matter? What might it take to get us to a place where schools, organizations, societies really enable us to do our best work? Our guest is someone that's very close to my heart. She is Dr. Anne Nock, a longtime educator, facilitator, and coach who brings really profound insight into strategy, leadership, culture, and pedagogy through her many years working in education and the nonprofit sector. She also holds a PhD in education from the University of Melbourne, our old alma mater, uh, with a focus in complexity theory. We're really trying to understand how do we craft successful and sustainable practices and culture in innovative learning environments. She has got many years of supporting education leaders and architects to develop school master plans. She's also traveled extensively on international learning tours and is very much, I think, at the forefront of school-based innovation and understanding, again, how might we transform, not just improve or tweak, but really transform what school could be. She's also delightfully at the Director of Leadership <laughs> and Culture at The Learning Future. So it's kind of <laughs> exciting that I get to just talk to you. And in some ways, I think it's going to be great to see what just unfolds from here. Um, so thank you for joining for this chat, one of many. One of many we've had and one of many which we'll yet to have, I'm sure. Oh, it's great. Um, let's talk about, let's go straight for it. You know, this piece around Education Transformed. Like, what does it mean to you? And then, of course, where does complexity play a role, you know, when we think about the human systems of schools? Sure. I guess um, education for many of us of a certain age has looked the same for much of our, much of our lives. Mm. It breaks my heart in a way that kids are walking into schools that look like schools that I attended as a student and the world has changed so significantly, but somehow inside that school gate, we have a, I think it's the best intention in the world for our kids, but this fear of um, using kids as guinea pigs or just um, will, will we be doing the best for our kids if we change this model that's been here for a thousand, well, 50, 100 years, that sort of thing. So, mm. yeah, I was really motivated to think about, well, we've got lots of opportunities and affordances, particularly this century. How do we maximise that for mm. student learning and learning in a really broad sense as well? Yeah. Yeah, I think how do you how do you understand learning and like what what's your definition of learning i guess it's a really great question you know like <laughs> what is life yeah yeah well, yeah that's the other question i always <laughs> yeah. ask you know this but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah when um, it comes to learning you know and, and, and to your point about the the distinction between schooling and learning is something that you know we often reflect on i think we today you know, the, the whole the whole sort of changeover from the 20th to the 21st century was a significant time because, you know, we started to have the internet in the 90s, late 90s. And so we really took hold of that. And I think it shone a light on learning as opposed to knowledge acquisition, which mm. was what school was about in the past. You know, we, we had to go on a treadmill and we had to get, you know, I'm mixing my metaphors, 
treadmill, then jump through hoops, and then yes. all these different things we had to do along the way just to be able to get that piece of paper at the end. But with this, with technology, it did really, that access to knowledge became so ubiquitous mm. that where we're focused on knowledge acquisition and um, assessment to get by with a test to meet a criteria to go to the next phase of life, mm. learning is a much more holistic sense of um, how do I need to be me? What do I need to succeed in life? What do I need to thrive? And there's no rule book for it, right? Mm. There's no formula. It's it's a iterative mm. journey that we're all on. And I guess that's where complexity comes into the into the frame because complexity is saying, well, there are so many uh, factors coming in. You know, the 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 previous approach to education, we use the factory metaphor, the assembly line, that sort of language. In complexity, we're using the, the language of the ecosystem, where if you think about an ecosystem has strength in its collective capacity and in uh -huh. its interdependencies, but you, you know, one tweak of an interdependency will have a impact on a something over this side. Mm. So it's so it's just the difference between linear and reducible toward that idea of the ecosystem mm. i think i love that and and that interdependency that's now so clearly the case in all parts mm. of life really if you think about yep. the global economy you think about the global health system and what's happened recently you think about the weather systems that are causing cataclysmic damage all over the place there's something that's really i think we're noticing, um, and you know, we often talk about VUCA, which many people will have yeah. heard before on this podcast, but the idea that, you know, we live in a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world, and we add H, the hyper-connected to that now. And I guess it's true, the world has never been so complex. It really feels this way. Yeah, that, that hyper-connect, because, you know, you, you and Tom Van Ark on the last, one of the last podcasts you did, touched on that hyper-connectivity. And, and I hadn't thought about hyperconnectivity in terms of so many aspects of our life. Mm. It's not just that we're connected uh, digitally, but there a disease here can have an impact on humans here. You know that mm. there's so much to that. So we can't. In the hot, one of the lang the language around complexity is is one of the words it uses is it's irreducible. Mm. We can't reduce something to its component parts and put it back together again. Right. And that's, uh, to me, that's, I think that's what we've attempted to do with learning when, you know, when the encyclopedias or the teacher's handbook held all the knowledge. Wow. We can't do that now. Yeah. We've got this, um, <clears throat> the hyperconnectivity has changed immensely. Yeah. I think, we're, I think we're both showing our age and because you're talking about the, the encyclopedia oh. <laughs> Britannica. And I remember having, you know, having some at home. And I remember when, when, Encarta came out on CD-ROM. Yeah. And I remember how transformative Ooh. that was. And all of a sudden you could just yeah. type into a search bar. And I was at high school at the time mm. and I started to realize this, there was going to be something to this technological transformation mm. we were in at that point. It's part of the third industrial revolution at that point. And of course, you know, the pundits now at the World Economic Forum and others talk about the fourth industrial revolution, you know, Klaus Schwab and others. But, and this idea that now it's actually about augmentation. 
And this world is mm. not about just knowledge, but it's about the creative economy. I'm really interested in this. And how do we prepare? I think prepare is even maybe the wrong word for young people, right? It's not prepare them for. They're in the world now. Mm. It's like, how do we acknowledge their irreducible uniqueness, right? So going from yeah. the standardized to the personalized and then support mm. them for this life of learning and lifelong, life-wide, life-deep mm. ways. I like that three-dimensional conception of expansion for each of us, right? So that yeah. means, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like having enterprise skills to build something, to create something, be able to yeah. collectively problem solve. And and yeah, that beautiful piece around that ecosystem. Um, what's the piece, like you spent quite a number of years delving into everything around complexity theory and how it pertains to creating innovative learning environments. What are some of the big headlines mm. that emerge from, from that research that you conducted? Uh, the, the whole journey of complexity theory was quite interesting. Mm. Um, in one of my supervisor meetings, um, one of them said to me, oh, because I was talking about things that were interesting me regarding my data, and he goes, yeah. you, should, you should investigate complexity theory. I thought, oh, okay, I didn't know what this was. And yes. if it, what you know about me so far, you know I'm a reader. And I will dive into things. And it was like, where have you been all my life when I, when I really started to see it? And one of my other PhD colleagues said to me, sometimes a, you find a theory and sometimes a theory finds you. Mm. And I, I've always been comfortable in sort of having a vague idea and not actually having everything mapped out, but just um, navigating my way toward an end. Mm. And I had a, well, I was a primary school teacher a thousand years ago. And I had one of those epiphany moments when we were doing some PD with a facilitator who came in Remember those people like us, <laughs> but no. this facilitator came in and she was talking about different ways we think and work. And we had a continuums that we needed to stand on. And she said, um, here you're um, kind of spontaneous and at the other end of that is you're comfortable with routine. Uh -huh. And I went, are people comfortable with routine? And it never entered my brain that people would be comfortable with routine because mm. I'm routine. We talked about this the other day. Routine for me has been a discipline. Otherwise, I just lose things. Yeah. So, you know, that sense of I've always been one of these people who, oh, I'll give that a go. One step forward, two steps forward, one step back. You know, it, it's the whole idea with um, change in complexity is that we have a sense of where we're going and we're willing to iterate our way forward. And, mm. and one of the metaphors I use for complexity is raising children. Right. Um, you know, we can't apply a formula to raising children. <laughs> That'd be nice though. Bill and I have two adult sons who have turned out to be pretty nice humans. And that mm. was our goal. Yeah. This fuzzy end goal. And we stuffed up or we did well or we got some people to talk to us, but we you make progress, you make steps progressing forward. And and I guess you're not doing it alone. That's mm. the thing. I one of the resounding um uh, themes of just my reading in this last, even the last month, is this whole thing about individual versus together mm. and doing things together. And so my research was around teachers working in teams in innovative learning environments 
And what made that successful and sustainable? And so much of that was down to the nature of the relationship of the people in the team working together. Um, so mm. if we get think about education again, how much of it was individualistic? It's still individualistic, you know, it comes to those um, exams and things. But yeah. what does it mean if learning was a together thing? Yeah. Game changer, I reckon. Tell me, I love that. And I mean, I think we all get it in, implicitly. I think we get like, it's things are yes. better together. You know, we really understand that. And yet, I, you know, we talk about the idea of legacy systems uh, that we've inherited. Yes. And it's my view yeah. clearly is that it's not our fault, but it's our responsibility. And systems exactly. aren't broken necessarily. They just function in a way that I think was designed for a different time in history it was designed in a sexist way or in a racist yep. way i mean all those things are really yep. clear and obvious but yep. the question then is okay well what do we do about that today and how do we act today how and this is why so much of our work is design right it's like well this is a design question it's how might we it is a, yeah. dot dot yeah. dot and all of the great work of the d school that we've hosted on this podcast previously and everything else so how do you think you know and because when i hear complexity theory like the nerd in me goes like Oh goodness, that's Ooh. I'm really excited. Systems thinking, you know, all that kind of space. And I'm very drawn to it. I, I guess teaching is such a practical, you know, the praxis of the craft and the art. Like what did you discern from this big inquiry that you've been conducting, you know, after many mm -hmm. decades of direct experience yourself, about how practically we shift where we are? You know, so for example, should we ever have a single teacher in a classroom anymore? I mean, or do we yeah. restructure that? I mean, what what are the kind of practical aspects that you've discovered that now have kind of baked into your evolving worldview? Well, one of the things that really um, resonated me uh, with me quite deeply in my um, in that reading phase of, of theory mm. was the idea of challenging assumptions, because. Complexity theory or moving forward in complexity requires us to challenge assumptions. And it doesn't mean we throw out things just because they're old, but we have to actually put things under a, a, a microscope or through a lens and go, does this thing serve our future or not? Mm. And make a decision on things rather than go, well, I think schools should not have uniforms, should call their teachers by their first name, should do all these things if they're a modern progressive school. And I'm not averse to those things, but mm. yeah. we need to go, well, what what function is uniforms serving? Yes. Okay. Is that something look just put things under a microscope and just yeah. go I guess prior to that we're saying what's our vision and where we're headed and then putting things and going, does this serve our vision or not? Yeah. And I think challenge, and I've, I think one of the biggest um, personal learnings for me through my study was challenging assumptions that I'd sort of had in, in many areas of my life mm. just to go keep, not keep, yes, no. Um, why do we do that? You know, mm. just, and I think that could be, um, like one of the biggest, um, when, when we talk about school physical learning space design, one of the biggest, um, I guess, uh, hurdles people have to overcome is that, that there is a, a trend toward taking away the teacher's desk in the classroom yeah. or in the learning space. 
So rather than I need to keep my desk or I, we need to get rid of the desks, sure. we go, what purpose is it serving? Is there something that could be better served? Is it a barrier to something? Ask some questions around those and challenge the assumption that every room should have a teacher's desk or we should get rid of teacher's desks. Inquire. You know, it's iterative, one step at a time. Mm. That's so good. And of course, that's your answer. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, because it's true. It's kind of not, it's not, here's what needs to be done. It's it's the deeper question of why would we do this and what are the benefits yeah. and what are the potential yeah. unintended consequences as well, you know, um, yeah. knowing that in complexity, things are really simple what's that great quote from einstein that i'm sure you could quote is the complexity expert he's like you know we want to get to the simplicity on the other side of complexity we don't want to be simplistic right which is i think we've we fail we've you know default to that because it's it's just cognitively so much kinder to us we're like oh yeah we'll just do the thing and we won't challenge thing but you know moving through complexity to the real essence of the simplicity that exists on the other side of complexity. I think there's something really powerful going through that inquiry, challenging assumptions. And then you come yeah. back and you you yeah. actually, I feel, and you know, there's some wonderful pundits out there that do this kind of work. You know, Peter Senge, for example, we were talking about earlier and Otto Sharma and others. And you know, you're getting down to the level of the mental model. Even Ray Dalio, yeah. you know, think about investment, yeah. you know, and his principles. The principles are few, but the methods are many. But what principle are we are we focusing on here? Like what actually yeah. underpins my practice? What underpins my leadership? What underpins this company or organization? I think that's just really interesting. But also, the system isn't oriented towards that question at all, really. It's a delivery. It's been a delivery system for, you know, mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. a number of one centuries, really, if we think back of the history of mass education. So I guess, what are the key questions when we think about education transfer, what are the questions we should be asking, Anne? Um, there's a couple of things I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about. One of the questions that I actually ask people when they are, um, for example, I think there's valid reasons why we don't have a teacher's desk. To keep that st- story going. Sure. At the front, you know. Mm-hmm. So when, when we're facing a problem like that, one of the questions I ask is, is what problem is that seeking to solve? Sure. So that we can actually get to that sense of, well, I need somewhere to be with the students when they come, they bring their work to me and we can work on it together. Well, let's challenge the assumption, does it need a desk? That sort of thing. Yeah. I think the other side of, of what we were talking about too, I, I, I'm i all about order. And so I think I don't want to give the impression that um, being comfortable with complexity means that I live in this chaotic state of, of you know, a, mm. of erraticness, right? Uh, yeah. So there is this, I think there's this really delicate balance between creating order and being ordered. Yeah. So our goal when we're navigating change and transformation is toward order. Mm. What is the, what is a sense of order helps us to do the things that we're supposed to do rather than systems or ordered systems that lock us into a machine-like way of working. Mm. That's great. And I was just, 
I was thinking like it's, it's entropy, right? Is that is that the universal principle here mm. that things tend towards chaos? Mm. And so entropy is the idea mm. of creating order from that chaos, and hence yeah. strategy, i.e., intentional action. Hence, you know, clarity but not certainty. Uh, you know, I really like that as a principle. You know, we can't, we don't, we can't. And you were talking about, you know, raising your two sons earlier, and you know, um, yeah, you can't. It's like we're so focused on the destination, whereas we can't. We know the destination anymore, but we can have directionality. So I really like yes. that idea. Yes, as that's a, it. Yeah, but of course that's really easy to say and really difficult to do, because you know don't we seek we seek these ordered environments out, and then of course the grooves become potentially ruts if we're not careful. We become so ruts, in yeah. even the neuroscience that you and I have been exploring, you know, through the extended mm. mind or John Medina or whatever, you know, that we're kind of looking into. It seems like we actually do love certainty because it creates safety. So tell me, yeah. tell me then the cultural implications of this, because clearly to be able to do this work, there needs to be safety created. And that seems like a cultural question. Yeah. So what came to mind as you asked that question was, I think it's Rogers and the law of diffusion of innovation. Yeah. yeah. So we're always going to have people who are outward, forward, thinkers changing the world and then we're going to have the laggards at the other end who are going white knuckle holding on to the way it's been so there are people who see opportunity and it, the privilege i had of working with stephen harris is that he was a far end innovator mm. i consider myself an early adopter i'm one of these people who gets excited by new bright shiny things mm. and I leap into change and then I go, oh, that, that worked well and that didn't work well. But I'm so comfortable with that sense of, of um, uncertainty around that. Yes. But if we, if we think about the people we work with, we lead, there's that idea of we might be a change agent, we might be an early doctor, and there's the other people who are on the journey and allowing them to take that journey. But I think if you've got the forward thinkers, then you've got people who are asking questions that most people don't even think about. Why do we do this? What are yeah. we doing? Yeah. How can we do this better? That sort of thing. So it's, a, I, it's getting back to not me, we. Mm. It's the we. It's how do we do things? How do we get the people who are willing, we're comfortable enough, and you and I have been talking about this idea of a, that sort of trusted space with our few. Yes. How do we get people in a space where, we can disagree and we can thrash things out. We don't have to keep all dissension under a surface, but we can have healthy discussion to, as we as we iterate forward rather than um, just stay where we are. It's about people we have around us, let's face mm. it. So, so if I'm – I mean, I agree completely with that and not surprisingly. I, if I'm – I'm interested in how how to architect that. So if you're a school leader or an educator – innovative parent, someone listening to this conversation, you know, what do I do? Like, what do I do about that? You know, because clearly it's the most complex thing and our journeys in leadership, it's, it's the greatest privilege to lead people and, you know, yeah. to be alongside them, in front of them, behind them where necessary to help create the environment where they can do their best work continually. Um, I mean, that's literally our, it's literally our relationship now. It's that it's kind of my role, Anne, in our small diet, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but what's so what are the key aspects to that? You know, what are the 
the practices or the artifacts that make all of that possible? Well, in, in my in my thesis, I um, I wrote an ethno ethnoautography. It's a hard yeah. word to say. Autoethnography, yeah. a chapter about my time at a school that is unnamed because it's anonymous in my thesis. But right. you know, we had we had um, the team I was working with. We were helping people through this journey, and you know, I'll I'll, I'll give a shout out to my colleague Steve Collis who I'll send him this link because Steve Steve was he introduced me to this design way of thinking and was mm. another one of those where it's been all my life mm. and we started to we worked with people to help them design the learning and the learning environment often there was an agenda toward contemporary learning future focused learning understanding that technologies can't change the game but you know what Steve always made us start with when we work with groups is about the human factor, mm. yourself and the people in the team and the sense of we're going to do this journey together. Yeah. And we would help people, and I, this, this has been backed up in some of my readings lately, we would help people break down that divide between my working self and my personal self to the, whichever degree they're comfortable. I get yeah. that but help them to go, um, here's something you don't know about me. Yeah. Or um, to start my day well, I need this. And so just to help people form that relationship of working together and then um, using the vision and the values of the school, unpack what does that mean for the students and their learning, what does that mean for the learning environment. And so – this, um, we had a, 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 a kit called Design Engage that Steve developed and we ended up delivering it at a lot of places and it really did mm. embed deep down in me. This is how, this is how we help people. We help yeah. people by letting them, it's a, well, let's face it, it's agency, isn't it? It's mm. giving people agency yeah. and having, having team as default. I think they're the, probably the two things that we, Always, we, we run we we run professional development, and this is ten years ago. Yeah. We run professional development, and we realised just one person, one person from a school, all these separate people, you can't do much with. We'd always try and get teams together, and that's yeah. Those experiences in the 10, 2010 to two thousand and say sixteen really framed my the way I think about things now. Yeah, so I feel like in that because um, I've I've heard you speak about this work up to this point, the, the piece around like radical transparency that, you know, that even just as a principle of function of a culture, you know, the idea of you know, the three values that we use, as you know, in our work, Anna, it's like, be curious, be honest, be kind. And I think the reason I love those three, and I actually, the the principles I try to live my life by also, but you know, the reason I love them is because the curiosity creates openness. It's more about questions and answers. And I think that means it's problem finding and possibility space. The honesty is like so far beyond nicety, you know, and um, one thing with people, oh, that's so nice. It's like, we don't should never strive for nice. We should strive for kind mm. because honesty, then you never get to the deeper pieces. You never yeah. really unearth what's really going on. We've kind of just... We're all just kind of superficially treading around it because it scares us in some way. And of course, the above all be mm. kind. I mean, that that really is a principle we should just apply if we're doing any human-centered work. Um, 
We're yeah. all, we've all got these battles. We live in this very complex, challenging world, you know, where there's loss and there's, you know, horror and there's also love and there's possibility and there's learning and there's insight. It's all, it's all in there. So, you know, when you think about yeah. the radical transparency piece, you know, what, what have you found in your career and life that really helps people be themselves and therefore do their best work because they have the psychological safety required and, that obviously is the only way we transform is when we're we feel safe enough to really change our mind and and ourself instead of being mired in this is the way it'll be and no you can't challenge me because my ego is so online like what's your what's your wisdom in this and yeah it stemmed out of that time every time you ask a question a word just goes bing and this time there's the word empathy so it's yes we all have things going on in our world that are big, but so does that person beside me. Mm. So how do I ensure that I am I am have a radar toward the others in the group and build that strong sense of empathy, which then like a lot of a lot of my thinking has been around um, the the school as a workplace that was uh that mm. was even deliberately placed in my thesis title so i realized um it was early in my teaching career when i was working with teachers i realized actually i prefer to contribute to education by working with the adults right yeah. moving yeah. on from children and so that sense of working with adults and building you know that empathy that that um we can see the perspective of the other person as well. And then we can see the perspective of the student as well. Mm. Building our empathy capacity, I think, is probably one of the really most important human-centered um, activities we can, or human-centered, uh, what is it, uh, attributes that we mm. can develop. Mm. Yeah, leading with empathy. I mean, yeah, beautiful and designing for belonging, mm. you know, as Susie Wise spoke about on our podcast, you know, this – it's kind of, it's so often the beginning of every design process is how do mm. I understand this other person's behaviors, feelings, emotions, thoughts, you know, stepping into the, you know, the learner profile aspect or, you know, any, any way to really step into, I mean, this is, I love the empathy piece from the languages work that I've delved into as well. I feel like when you try to speak someone else's language, like literally like this case, nothing more oh empathic well all it's all of a sudden <laughs> yeah. you see you hear someone speaking and even say broken english and the empathy that i hold yeah. for them is just so much yep. deeper than any empathy i held before becoming a multilingual speak you know so there's just that, yeah that piece on empathy um and yeah. then clarity can i reason. yeah can i add something to that um because in my research, I talk to teachers working in teams in these environments, but I also ask the same question of the principal. So yeah. I talked to a number of principals. And what really resounded, and I, I feel that this um, goes alongside the empathy piece from a leadership perspective, was the value of the, um, uh, the non-hierarchical posture of the leader, of being... You know, that's that's, a, that's another delicate balance in the ecosystem, right? Yeah. But being able to, um, you know, I, I remember particular instances from my um, focus group or my interviews with the principal, and one principal said, "Well, in the in the in the learning environment, I wanted to have these things in place, 
But then the teachers came back and said, well, this one does not working. And like she said, I had to put that aside. Mm. And there's this idea of, I think it's changing the nature of leadership to a, the term I use is cross-scale. So we're across the scale and it's non-hierarchical. And that's hard in org chart organisations. Yeah. On a piece of paper, it looks like it's hierarchical. Mm. And sometimes we do need to have that piece of paper, but how does that, how does the culture, how is it lived out mm. so that that non-hierarchical posture is um, is evident in the community and the culture of the school? Yeah. And I think empathy from a leader's perspective is, is really important. And I know they've got a lot of pressures to get tick boxes and get things done, but that whole non-hierarchical piece is, is big. I, I I agree. I, f- I think of like Frederick Lalo's work on that, that, you know, the idea of you think about the different level of an organization, you know, how hierarchical command and control, and again, Fallen would speak to this, command and control orgs or command and control systems versus the liberatory yeah. space, like a system that liberates, yeah. a leader that liberates down or outwards, like the thing about direction. Um, and then is informed upwards towards those, those decision-making beings. I mean, I actually really like org charts when they are very creatively different. I still, there needs to still be, of course, information flows and accountability, responsibility. All of that. But yeah, yep. but I think, yeah, that kind of management paradigm, I think is something else that we've inherited, right? And it's now, yes. you see, you see the great leaders that you're drawn to and that you kind of step out of a meeting with and you go, and they might've just even critiqued a whole bunch of stuff that you've created and you just feel so motivated to affect it. Yes. And that's, that yeah. I think is the, oh, just the art and the craft of, of humble leadership that where people see you and you, and trust you, you know, high trust, mm. high responsibility. That's, there's something to those environments and we all have had experiences where it's the opposite of that. So, mm. yeah. Mm. And I think all this is as a pillar for transformation, right. And like, there's no way we get, we can shift, deep mental models that are held if it's if you don't feel trusted to step into the human the human it's all the human it's so good the human future and i I, um thankfully we get to keep talking for however who knows how many more months and years so that's really exciting for me (laughs) but um (laughs) i i would love you to if you could just give us some take-home messages for you know, those listening to our conversation, what are some things when, when the other words that come to you, the principles that underpin, you know, yeah. from complexity, from the transformation space, from the work that we're trying to do, you know, alongside others in this education ecosystem? Um, so not, I'm just going to throw in one more concept that I haven't spoken about, but hopefully maybe brings things together. Sure. And this is the word create creativity. Um, something I've been reading recently talked about there different ways. I'm not going to recite them now because I know I'll get three and not four, but this whole concept that to problem solve or to make progress in complexity through design requires us to be, uh, be creative and be, Mm. and, and be willing to be creative. And so I guess my biggest, one of my biggest messages to people right now is we're all creative. We are all creative beings. Just because you might not, may not be a, an artist of the paintbrush or a singer or a good with 
writing words, whatever, there's different ways that we can show our creativity and to, to grow that capacity because that's mm. how we're going to um, tackle the big problems that we're facing in this world through a sense of yeah. I have the I and my people, we have the creativity to be able to do this. Mm. That's great. And the collective creativity, you know, and I, I love it. It's the like, collective creativity. It's come back to the way you started, you know, that idea of knowledge, you know, and your your critique, your reflection on the education system we've inherited, you know, for going from this knowledge acquisition. And even when people say knowledge economy, I think that's pretty old, an old mental model. It's mm, a creative yeah. economy. Mm. It's what can you it do is. with what you know? And, and, and I, you know, creative economy in a character world. Who are you as you do things with what you know? And that piece mm. matters more than ever. If we're going to try to collectively create solutions in this moment, perhaps. So, yeah, gosh. Onwards, hey? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> onwards. <laughs> onwards, ever onwards. I'm excited. Yeah. I get and excited. I, and that's the piece, I guess. Like, it can be overwhelming and we can other than go towards, oh, I don't know, crisis and in some ways freeze right. up as opposed to be like, all right, yeah. let's pull up our sleeves and let's go for it. You know, and that orientation, yeah. I think being something that we can cultivate over our lives, you know, wherever you are cool. in, in your job, in your classroom, in your school right now. Yeah. It's like, what can you create? And, and yeah. who are you, who grab are you some being? people. Yeah. Grab some people. Mm. Grab, some, grab people, some people, put a problem in the middle and then go for it. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Ann, mm. thank you so much. For this wonderful conversation. Look at, look and, at Barry, uh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, dear friend and colleague, and I'll see you really soon. And for all of you listening along, thank you so much for staying connected to the Learning Future podcast. And we're continuing these conversations with wonderful people from all over the world as we think about how might we come together and collectively create solutions that help us towards you know, a thriving ecosystem for young people and adults that serve them. See you next week. Mm -hmm.